Welcome back, everyone, to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. I was having a conversation with my mom recently about a young man from the Eritrean Canadian community who got into some trouble with the law. And she told me about how when our family friend went to visit him in jail, he was shocked to see that he wasn't the only young East African man there. He was surprised that the jail was full of young men from the East African diaspora. I'm talking about Eritreans, Ethiopians, Somali, and others. I've heard this conversationally for several years now, and there are many deep socioeconomic reasons for this, but it got me thinking about the racial aspects of Canada's criminal justice system. I can't speak to why those particular young men were in prison, what they did, or who they are, but it isn't a stretch to say that our criminal justice system is influenced by race and racism. The criminal justice system is plagued by a host of problems. Buildings are run down, policies around solitary confinement have been found to be dangerous for mental health, there is untackled violence against inmates by correction officers, and the system is a horrible replacement to manage people living with mental health and addiction issues. For most of us, it's unlikely we spend a lot of time thinking about the criminal justice system, unless it affects us personally. But today, we're going to talk about it and, of course, how race and racism intersects with it. I've heard the statistics about racism and criminal justice in Canada you likely also know, whether through directly learning about it or a sneaking suspicion, that in our country, the rates of arrest, the kinds and lengths of sentencing, and treatment in prisons is disproportionate based on the color of your skin. In an interview with CBC Radio, legal expert Constance Backhouse broke down some examples of systemic racism through three cases in Canada's legal history. These are explicit ways that race and racism played a role in the courts. Constance Backhouse is the author of Color Coded, A Legal History of Racism in Canada from 1900 to 1950. The first one was the Inuit and the Indian Act. In 1939, a court case known as Reference Re-Eskimos summoned some experts, including anthropologists, geographers, and missionaries, to determine whether Inuit, or Eskimos as they were then known, whether Inuit should be recognized as Canadian citizens or Indians, as defined by the Indian Act. These experts, quote-unquote, measured the heads, faces, nose, stature, eye color, hair color, thickness of the lips, dress, diet, occupation, religion, hair texture, and teeth size to determine this. The court found that Inuit were protected under the Indian Act. The second legal case using race and racism was against the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. Several branches of the KKK have existed and probably continue to exist in Canada in the early 20th century. Backhouse noted that white Canadians, including the police and the press, largely supported the KKK of Canada, and that the Klan's membership was mostly made up of middle to upper class white men and women. In February 1930, in Oakville, Ontario, about 75 members of the KKK forced themselves into the home of Isabella Jones, a white woman, and her fiancé, Ira Johnson, a black man. 
The Klansmen took Jones to the nearby Salvation Army, where they burned a cross in front of him and warned him to never consort with a white woman again. Three Klansmen were charged, but not of what you might have thought. They weren't charged of abduction. They weren't charged of assault or intimidation. There was a very bizarre section of the criminal code that forbid traveling at night while wearing a mask. That is what they were charged with. One of the three men was convicted, leading to a $50 fine. The Black community of Ontario, as you can imagine, was appalled by this case, and it was appealed. A three-month prison sentence was added to the fine. The written decision made no mention of race, but as you can tell from what I just described, race had everything to do with it. The third case that she mentions is about Black land ownership. Christopher Downey of Nova Scotia had won a major victory in the legal battle to officially own the land his family had called home for generations. The roots of this case lay in a racist law that dates back to the American Revolutionary War. As you might remember, Britain had offered plots of Canadian land to settlers who took up arms against the Americans. White settlers were granted full title to fertile plots of land, while black settlers were handed rocky, infertile land, and they didn't ever end up owning it because titles were very rarely actually issued to them. In the 1960s, the government of Nova Scotia introduced the Land Title Clarification Act, called the LTCA, to make it easier for black Nova Scotians to get title to their own property. Christopher Downey of Nova Scotia applied for a title to his family's home in Nova Scotia, where his great-grandfather had settled in 1913, but he ran into complications because the LTCA required applicants to have lived on the land for 20 years, but Downey had moved back only 19 years ago. In July, a judge ruled that African Nova Scotians have been subjected to racism for hundreds of years, adding that the province has been applying the law incorrectly when considering land claims. The government accepted the court's decision and changed its policy. Now, these three legal cases demonstrated how racism has played a role throughout the criminal justice system in an explicit way. But nowadays, we see racism throughout the criminal justice system in much more insidious and implicit ways. As I've mentioned numerous times now, our many social systems in Canada are built on a foundation of white supremacy. The idea that white people, culture, and values are more important than those belonging to people and communities of color. White supremacy is not just racist white men in white cloaks and pointy white hats. This inherent bias permeates our criminal justice system. I've heard too many people say that we're not as bad as the United States, as if that's something to be proud of, when in reality, many Canadians don't know or refuse to see how our challenges with racism result in disproportionate incarceration of people of color. When individuals hold conscious or unconscious discriminatory beliefs, it impacts the way that they interact with people who look different from them. In Canada's justice system, systemic racism is created by a combination of racialization of offenders, norms and personnel, including judges, police officers, elected officials, each of which are a product of a system that upholds white supremacy and marginalizes racialized groups. Institutionalized racism can be defined as those patterns, procedures, practices, and policies that operate within social institutions 
so as to consistently penalize, disadvantage, and exploit individuals who are members of non-white racial or ethnic groups. This isn't new and this isn't a surprise to people who work in the criminal justice system. Justice Doherty of the Ontario Court of Appeal has said, in quotes, racism is, and in particular anti-black racism, is a part of our community's psyche. It operates on the basis of negative racial stereotypes. Furthermore, our institutions, including the criminal justice system, reflect and perpetuate those negative stereotypes. These elements combine to infect our society as a whole with the evil of racism. Blacks are among the primary victims of that evil. When thinking about racism within the criminal justice system, we're going to break it down into three areas that racism works. Policing, the judiciary system, and the penal system. When talking about racism, one way to understand how bad the problem is is to look at the numbers. Many studies have been done and have considered whether racialized people are overrepresented in the system. First Nations people in Canada are the most overrepresented group in this system. Studies show that provincially, First Nations people are incarcerated at rates more than six to seven times the overall provincial rate. For example, in Manitoba, 60% of prisoners in provincial jails are First Nations people, while 70% of women in provincial jails and 75% of juveniles in Winnipeg's detention centers are First Nations people. Before we continue, actually, let me give you the quick notes on our criminal justice system. Maybe you watch a lot of court dramas and you think you know it all, aka myself, but I'm going to go through it anyway. In theory, we are all equal under the law in Canada. No one person is protected or above it. Canada has two branches of law, public law and private law. Public law has to do with all aspects of society related to criminal matters, constitutional matters, so your basic rights, and administrative issues. This branch is between you and the government. Private law has to do with cases between two people. This can be related to issues with property or contracts. We're going to focus this episode on public law. Let's walk through the different touch points that someone may have with the criminal justice system. First is policing. A person's first point of contact with the criminal justice system is usually with that first interaction with a police or RCMP officer. The officer may have witnessed or suspected a person of doing something illegal. The officer intervenes, maybe issues a warning or a ticket. Maybe it becomes more serious and the person is handcuffed and taken into custody at a station. Depending on the seriousness of the charge, the person may be offered bail and waits for their day in court, or they're held in a prison. Next is the judiciary. Everyone in Canada has a right to a trial to defend themselves against the charges that they're facing. Innocent until proven guilty, right? This happens in a court, with two sides overseen by a judge. There is the prosecution, who works for the province or the country, and makes the argument for how you broke the law. And then there's the defense either hired or appointed by the government in case you can't afford a lawyer, who defends the individual facing the charges. They will argue why the law wasn't broken, or maybe the law was broken and there was a reason for it, so they'll fight for a lesser charge with their argument. Sometimes there's a jury of individuals who listen to the case and make a decision about whether or not you are guilty. 
This jury is made up of everyday Canadian citizens over the age of 18. Some of you may have been called before for jury duty, so you know firsthand what happens in the courtroom. This jury listens to the evidence of both sides and tells the court whether they unanimously believe that you are innocent or you are guilty. The judge, who is supposed to be unbiased, then decides your sentence if you're guilty based on the seriousness of your crime. You can appeal your verdict and sentencing too through a separate process that I'm not going to go into. Lastly, the penal system. This refers to a network of agencies that administer the prison system and can include things like community-based programs, parole, probation boards. The penal system is where sentences are served as either prison time or in community-based initiatives. Bias and discrimination happens at all three levels, and it is compounded at all levels, from that very first interaction with an officer, to the way someone is portrayed by the prosecution, to the way that they are perceived by the jury, to the way that they're sentenced, to how their times are served. Race plays a role in the way someone navigates this entire system. There are socioeconomics at play as well, do not get me wrong. If someone comes from a poor household, has mental health or addiction issues, their sentences will be different. The No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast could not do what it does without listeners like you. We do not take you for granted at all. We appreciate your support so, so much, especially the support of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. Thank you. We need your help, though, to continue to spread information, contextually, factually accurate information about anti-racism work. It would be wonderful if you could take a few minutes out of your day to write us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts and Google specifically are fantastic ways, and we would love the support. It would be a huge help to us. We really appreciate it. An Ontario human rights report called A Collective Impact analyzed data from the Special Investigation Unit of Ontario from two periods between 2000 to 2006 and 2013 to 2017. The analysis was conducted by Professor Scott Worthley, a criminologist at the University of Toronto. The report found that despite the fact that Black people make up 8.8% of Toronto's population, the Ontario Human Rights Report found that Black people were grossly overrepresented in SIU investigations. The report found that a Black person in Toronto is nearly 20 times more likely than a white person to be shot and killed by police. Black people were overrepresented in several types of violent police interactions, including use of force cases, shootings, deadly encounters, and fatal shootings. The report confirmed the long-standing concern from Black communities that they are overrepresented in incidents of serious injury or deadly force involving the Toronto Police Service. Out of 244 cases analyzed from 2013 to 2017, so four years, out of 244 cases, Black people made up 25% of SIU investigations, 28% of police use of force cases, 36% of police shootings, 61% of police use of force cases resulting in civilian death, and shockingly, 70% of 
police shootings resulting in civilian death. Remember that black people make up less than 10% of the population, so these numbers are insane. Black people represent almost 32% of people charged, while white people and other racialized groups were underrepresented. The report also found that more white people were carrying weapons in police use of force cases, and that white people allegedly threatened or attacked police more often than black people. In police shootings, 20% of white people were carrying a gun versus 11% of black civilians. Now, as I mentioned, this isn't news to the black community or anyone that's been following Black Lives Matter defund the police conversation. More recently, a 2020 report found that black people are more likely than others to be arrested, charged, or have force used against them during interactions with Toronto police. The data does not lie. Black people's interactions with police have been problematic for forever, really. And bias and discrimination must be at the heart of these really violent interactions between black civilians and police officers. They are more likely to die at the hands of police. They're more likely to be harassed by police. And yet, police continue to fight back and say that they do not have a problem when it comes to race. As I mentioned before, research has shown black and indigenous youth are overrepresented in our criminal justice systems. They are disproportionately stopped and searched by police. There is an increased likelihood of experiencing incarceration. Other factors that affect black and indigenous youth is that they're more likely to be removed from their families and placed in care. They're more likely to live in families with high rates of poverty, and they're more likely to face barriers to equal access to employment. So these socioeconomic issues are really important in the conversation about the criminal justice system as well. In Canada, there is a particular shame in the way that the criminal justice system treats, sentences, and holds Indigenous people. There is a clear and distinct link between Canada's policies towards Indigenous people through residential schools, the 60s scoop, and even now our modern child welfare system to criminal justice. In the United States, you often hear of the school-to-prison pipeline for Black kids. In Canada, it isn't much different, but here it's mostly Indigenous kids going from foster care to prison. My name is Georgina Sun, and I'm a survivor of the Canadian justice system, as well as a survivor of the child welfare system. Both my parents were survivors of the residential school, and as a result of their experience there, how it impacted their lives, so it impacted myself and, and my brothers and my sisters. We traveled into uh, you know, various foster homes, uh, and in those foster homes, endured through all kinds of different abuses. So I was deprived of love and nurturing and safety. And because I was deprived of those things, uh, how it manifested into a lack of self-worth, no identity whatsoever, and ultimately being completely fearful all the time of the adults in my life. So I found myself uh, wrapped and caught in a crack cocaine addiction, alcoholism. I found myself, you know, in and out of abusive relationships and ultimately um, serving various 
bits of time and then ultimately uh, finding myself in a federal penitentiary for uh, the trafficking of cocaine. The solution is, is to just lock up Aboriginal people. This is the solution for people who are broken today, is to put them, to put them in prison. Being Aboriginal means you're a lesser person. And so in those institutions, you're treated as a lesser person. Even if what I'm doing is wrong, ultimately there's a reason why I'm doing these things. And so in those places, you know, there was never the, the space or the opportunity or the safety to find out why. The correctional guards, the police, the arresting officers, the judges, the lawyers who weren't willing to try to understand why I was doing the things that I was doing. People are having conversations, finally, that there is this over-representation of Aboriginal people in the justice system. So what are we going to do to change it? What are you going to do for all the people that have experienced the things that I've experienced, not by choice as a young person? How do we stop those cycles? Prison is not the answer. A 2017-2018 to annual report of the Office of the Correctional Investigator pointed to increasing numbers of incarcerated Indigenous people. Indigenous inmates in federal institutions rose from 20% of the total inmate population in 2008-2009 to 28% in 2017-2018. Indigenous people represent only 4.1% of the overall Canadian population. At the same time, the percentage of federally incarcerated Indigenous women rose from 32% to 40%. It's quite surprising to hear that not only is the, the percentage of inmates who are Indigenous men going up, but it's even higher for Indigenous women and, sadly, for Indigenous youth. Indigenous young people accounted for 46% of admission to correctional services in 10 jurisdictions across Canada in 2006 and 2017, while representing 8% of the general youth population of those same jurisdictions. Aboriginal youth are overrepresented in both custody and community supervision. In all categories, Indigenous admission is substantially higher than non-Indigenous admissions. In general, courts are not doing enough to fully recognize the structural and systemic racism at play in projecting the outcomes for racialized people in Canada. Experts have been wondering, what if Crown attorneys were educated on how racism operated in the lives of racialized youth, and therefore they could understand and appreciate the context behind how these people end up in front of them being tried or charged for different criminal offenses? It isn't impossible to imagine that courts could recognize how systemic racism operates and informs the lives of Canadians. There may not be enough being done, but there are examples of legal cases taking race into consideration when sentencing. These kinds of decisions are setting a precedence for others across the country for how systemic racism can be tackled. The court system has a role to play in evening out the harsher sentences that Black and Indigenous Canadians face. For example, a decision made by Justice Nakatsuru in a case involving a young black man convicted of a firearm offense. Drawing on work pioneered by Robert Wright, a Nova Scotia social worker, 
Morris's lawyers, Gail Smith and Faisal Mirza, presented two reports to the court. The reports gave detailed information about Morris's life experiences, showing the connection to the historical and present realities of Black life in Canada. The report included a cultural assessment showing Morris's life experiences and how racism attributed to his offending behavior. Another report illustrated a backgrounder on Black Canadian experiences across social institutions and sectors, such as child welfare, education, employment, to show how systemic racism is in Canadian society. The judge looked at these reports and used them to inform his decision in the case. He wrote, in quotes, As Ms. Sibylis, Professor Ouso, Bempa, and Professor James say, anti-Black racism has shaped your life in a way that has brought you into the criminal court. It shaped your mother's life as well. It has negatively impacted your opportunities in life to date. These are systemic and case-specific factors that lessen your moral blameworthiness for this offense and soften the impact of general deterrence and denunciation in your particular case, Mr. Morris. They are relevant and they are compelling in my view. They are factors that tell me that I should choose the length of your sentence with the principle of restraint firmly in my mind. It demonstrates that the judge found value in understanding the context of Morris's life experiences when considering his sentencing. Some people will never accept that systemic racism is to blame for the inequities that we see in the criminal justice system. I read an Atlantic article recently, and the guest being interviewed when pushed to explain the differences in incarceration rates in the United States by race had the gall to say, and I kid you not, he was quoted as saying that there are certain races more prone to violence and illegal behavior. This is textbook racism, the attribution of certain characteristics to an entire race of people. If only racism was this explicit, we could call it out easier. But it's not. The devil is in the details, in the quantifiable numbers that show, without a doubt, that there is something wrong. There are advocates fighting for reform of the criminal justice system. We're seeing cases create precedents about how systemic racism is addressed when it comes to sentencing, like I had mentioned in that case in Nova Scotia, but the same is happening across Canada. There are Indigenous activists and advocates who are pushing for culturally-based rehabilitation programs to be introduced to Indigenous people, especially considering just how high the number is for Indigenous people incarcerated. But it is undeniable that systemic racism has a role to play in criminal justice. We will continue this conversation because we know it's a beast of a topic in our next episode when we talk about the movement to defund the police. Beverly Osuzua is our researcher. Jade Sullivan manages our social media. And I am your host, Mary Eunice. See you next week. Bye.